Discover BetMGM, the betting app sports fans in the Capital Region turn to for nonstop action all winter long. Take the excitement of football, basketball, and hockey to the next level with same-game parlays, exclusive signature bets, odds boost promos, and much more. Plus, now you can sign in, place bets, and manage your cash balance under the same BetMGM account in D.C., Maryland, and Virginia. With the same username and password throughout the DMV, it's never been easier to play with the king of sportsbooks. Download the BetMGM app today. BetMGM is an authorized gaming partner of the NBA and an official sports betting partner of the NHL. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly and offer resources to help you make appropriate choices. Please gamble responsibly. BetMGM.com for terms and conditions. Must be 21 years of age or older to wager. Washington, D.C. only. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Welcome back to Dealing Together. First caller? I bought three sweaters to get the fourth free. Oh, you got fleeced. Next caller? I traded my old Samsung at AT&T for a new Samsung Galaxy S24 Plus and chose my plan. That's not a bad deal. It is not. Our best smartphone deals. Your choice of plan. Learn how to get the new Samsung Galaxy S24 Plus with Galaxy AI on us with eligible trade-in. AT&T. Connecting changes everything. Offers vary by device. Subject to change. S24 plus 256 gigabyte offer available for a limited time. Terms and restrictions apply. See att.com slash Samsung for details. You're listening to 100 Words or Less with Ray Harkins. Hello, podcast party people. Welcome to this particular episode and this show. I just like saying podcast party people because it's got P's and alliteration and all that stuff. If this is your first time here, you are uh, welcome to pull up a chair, come hang out. This is a discussion with people who are involved in independent music to pick their brains, go in and around their lives in music, and frankly, why they care about what they care about. Because I think all of us get pulled together in these weird, small, sweaty rooms because we... We, we want something a little bit different, and I think that is what makes this community so incredibly cool. And my guest today embodies that, even though some people might be like, well, I don't know, it's like, this is not really like punk or hardcore adjacent, like it for sure is. <laughs> Armor for Sleep. Ben Jorgensen is the lead vocalist, guitarist, because uh, he grew up in the Jersey punk and hardcore scene, was putting on shows at an early age, and really, really was an active participant. And uh, I personally have liked Armor for Sleep for quite some time. They actually just released a new record called The Rain Museum. came out on our friends uh, at Equal Vision Records. Love what they do. Love pretty much all of the humans that I've ever met at Equal Vision. And uh, actually, I wanted to sign to that record label at one point, but uh, my band wasn't good enough. <laughs> Which, if you want to reference that, uh, you can listen to the Daniel Sanshaw episode uh, many, many moons back. But uh, we we dig into it, and it was really fun. But uh, Armor for Sleep did make the cut. <laughs> and they, uh, like I said, released that record, The Rain Museum. And I had to have Ben on because uh, I just think he's been a very prolific musician. He has done a lot of stuff, not only in front of the scenes with his band, but he's done a lot of writing behind the scenes. He's done a lot of, um, you know, interesting things throughout his life, all stemming from the creative process of playing in a band. So some business pleasantries. I want you to email the show, one of her words, podcast at gmail.com. You can also rate and review this podcast on Apple podcast or 
throw some stars, the Spotify direction, wherever it is you listen to it, or just share it on social media. I know these are very basic things and every podcast asks you to do it, but there's a reason that every podcast asks you to do it. And maybe one of these times that as I beg and plead, you, the listener, will be like, actually, you know what? I'm going to go ahead and throw, throw Ray those stars. I would appreciate that. Uh, you can also subscribe to this show on YouTube. I'm posting some of those these discussions on there just because it's a great discovery tool. And some people like to listen to podcasts on YouTube. and That's their thing. I'm not going to yuck someone else's yum. So uh, yeah, it's in the show notes section. You will be able to dive into that. And also people have asked me about the opening intro music and outro music. The band link is in the show notes. It's called Tapestry Gold from my friend Eugene. I love him dearly. And he always creates really, really cool music for the show. And I appreciate that. Custom, custom things. That's, I love being able to work with friends to be able to, you know, enhance what it is that I'm doing because I can't do everything. I am not that good at a lot of things. And that's why you got friends, right? Anyways, let's talk to Ben. We go all over the place, as you would imagine. But uh, yeah, some really fun insights in here. So let's talk to Ben. And here we go. I uh, first discovered you via uh, Victory Style 5, which I know is a funny story for you because I've heard you tell it um, of just the Mm. fact that, you know, Victory was interested in signing you and they were like, oh, yeah, we'll put you on the comp and whatever. And obviously you didn't end up signing to that record label. I definitely just, uh, right, (laughs) I, I just loved the song and I was like, wow, this is interesting. I never heard of this band before. Like, yeah, I want to know more information. And uh, it, it was kind of a, you know, this sort of mystery band because there wasn't any real uh, idea of like, oh, now they are going to put out a record on Victory. And like, here's the marketing plan. And I'm sure in retrospect, you are obviously glad that you went down the road with uh, Equal Vision but there probably had to be some sort of animosity from victory being like, Hey, we put you on a comp and you guys didn't end up signing with your label. Or were you just so far removed from that sort of conversations that you didn't even, it didn't even come back to you. I mean, animosity is probably the right word. Um, but it might be a little bit stronger than that actually. So Tony Brummel, um, my guitar player at the time, Paul, was on the phone with Tony, just telling him like, Hey, we received the contract and that's, uh, a ridiculous contract so we're not going to sign it uh tony threatened to kill all of us so um yeah i guess <laughs> i think it's a little bit more like beyond animosity when you're uh you know talking about murder. yeah death threats yeah. yeah no that's um i mean i would like to say that that is uh you know the first time i've heard any sentiments like that coming from that person but that's not the case i mean he definitely has a reputation as we all know but uh I, I just, yeah. I, I really like that. It's a very symbolic representative of obviously where you guys were, where it's like you were just children and this idea that they wanted to throw you in a car. You're like, why would you ever say no to that? Like, of course you're going to say yes to being put on a victory records comp. And then all of a sudden when like the business stuff comes into play, it's like, oh, actually we don't like this contract. Like you guys were just reacting, you know? Yeah. And I guess we found out after the fact that that was kind of um, 
just their MO. That's how they operated. They had bands sign bad contracts. And I think that's probably why they made a bunch of money um, as a label because, you know, at the time they were, they were a hot label. So bands were like, well, you know, we'll do anything to be big. Um, And, you know, honestly, there was a part of me that was like, nah, should we just sign? But like, you know, our moms made us have a lawyer look at the contract, which is just, I mean, uh, that's just life 101. If you have a contract, you you bring it to a lawyer to look at. Um, I'm not sure. I, I don't know how these other bands signed those agreements. Um, just did they not have a lawyer look at it? Because it, it like it wasn't even like it wasn't even like a tough call. It wasn't like well, this contract could be okay. It was like like from what I understand, like a joke of an agreement. Like there was just, just so much ridiculous stuff in there that uh, right. I, I, I yeah, I really don't know how anyone accepted. <laughs> right, it's like we'll we'll sign you for ten records. You're going to sign over all your publishing rights. We have all your merch rights, and some and bands are like, sure, that sounds good. <laughs> it's like yeah. wait, no, 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 no. Someone should look at this somewhere. Yeah. Yeah. But I, I just, the, the, the reason I I'm so fascinated with that is just because it was such a, you know, interesting thing to happen. And then, you know, once the, uh, you, you guys, you know, started to play shows and obviously once you put the band together and started to be more present that the, I guess for me, and I know many of the other people who, uh, you know, cared about your band and still care about your band. Like once that veil was kind of lifted, it's like, oh, okay. So this isn't some like weirdo one song project. Like <laughs> there's something more here, yeah. you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> I mean, what I will say is like, uh, we, we, we need to thank Victory Records because us being on that comp, like if, if I really think back on it, I, I'm not sure Equal Vision would have pursued us if we hadn't had that exposure that we had on victory style five. And also I got to give it to victory. Like that comp definitely um, was distributed very well. You know, like it was in every hot topic and like pack sun, like in every mall around the world, they were basically just like giving out that compilation for free. So it was, it was the best promotion we ever could have asked for. Um, So thank you, victory records. I'm sorry if you still want to kill us. But um, we appreciate what you did for our band, <laughs> right? And the fact, like, I actually had to look back at the comp to jog my memory because you guys were, you know, it wasn't like you were the lead track. You were, mm-hmm. you know, track nineteen on a twenty-three. Yep. <laughs> but like, and which makes it even more interesting because it's you had to really, you know, as a kid or as a young adult, you had to kind of sort through what you liked and didn't like, but to your point, those comps were so instrumental on breaking bands, especially because, you know, people, children didn't have more than $5 to spend on something. And then they would be able to get, oh, wow, 24 songs for $5. Like, I can't wait to, (laughs) I can't wait to listen to all these bands. Yeah. 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 And also, obviously, uh, this was pre-Spotify, pre-playlists. Like the, the, the need to discover was just so much like now he like, the discovery is like handed to all of us in our, in our Spotify apps and everything. But back then the need to discover new bands was like so strong. And, you know, my friends and I would like feverishly look through the thank you section of every single band that came through town to try and find like the names of other bands that sounded cool. You know, it's like that, that hunger couldn't be fed because we just loved this music so much. So I think a lot of other kids were feeling it. So like when there was a new compilation, like I, I'm, for me, when I was growing up, it was the the Fat Records compilations. Um, I I bought every single CD of every band on the Fat Records comps, and I, you know, Victory the Victory style comps were the same way. 
Uh, it's just like a funny, a funny thing to think about. Yeah, I agree wholeheartedly. I know because it, it, it is that weird pocket of time of, you know, a good six to eight year run of those comps being like, if you were a record label and you didn't put out a compilation, you were completely missing the boat and you just yeah. didn't, you didn't have the same presence to be able to, like you said, be able to have kids discover your music in a real organic way where it's like oh this is just all of our you know best songs from every band on the label like check it out Mm -hmm. yeah Yeah. i mean that's why i find out found out about my favorite labels you know um was which ones had the coolest comps um yeah it was huge (laughs) totally totally. (laughs) well uh we'll pick through some of that a little bit later but I, i know you yourself you know clearly born and raised in, uh, you know, Jersey and, uh, definitely cut your teeth within the music scene mm-hmm. within that area. What was your, I guess, you know, childhood like in regards to, you know, growing up like mother and father in the house, you know, brothers and sisters, what the family structure look like? Um, so I grew up, my parents got divorced when I was two years old. Um, and my mom did a majority of raising my two older sisters and I, I mean, I, I saw my dad, um, every other weekend and you know he also helped raise us but it was pretty much my mom working very hard to put my sisters and I through uh private school and uh it was important to her to send us to a private Jewish day school so i grew up uh going to a private Jewish day school the weird thing is though that like most of the other kids that i grew up with came from very stable uh families and i was like the weirdo who came from um uh, you know, a household with divorced parents and a mom who worked really late. And I had to make my own, my own lunch from like, you know, kindergarten on because my mom just didn't have time. So, uh, that was just very different. I'm sure in a public school that would have been like totally normal, but I, I just always felt like kind of a freak, uh, growing up in the, you know, in the school system that I went up to that I grew up in. So I think there was definitely a connection between me feeling like an outsider and me, being drawn to, I guess, countercultures more than my friends around me. So like the first counterculture that I really got into when I was in middle school was skateboarding, um, which was, you know, really funny. Like in school, I had to wear a yarmulke and we had to say like morning prayers, but I would be like sneaking like skate videos to my friends and we'd be watching all this stuff. And I was definitely like the bad kid out of my friends just because I did stuff like found skate videos and, and, uh, you know, was aware of all that stuff. Um, but my friends eventually came along and, and, uh, the skate videos quickly led to, again, to like fat records and punk rock because all of those skate videos were just basically sponsored by a lot of the West coast punk rock. So I heavily got into music from a, a very young age. I started playing drums when I was in fourth grade and, um, I put on my first show when I was 13 years old in New Jersey, uh, after I found out about the scene and then, uh, you know, kind of, you know, did my thing from there. Was the, um, I guess, was the the faith portion of your, uh, you know, your upbringing as far as school was concerned, was that something that you identified with or that was just something that because the school was good and, you know, because your your parents were of that faith, it's like, well, yes, of course, Ben is going to do this. Yeah, I just, I I just had to go. I mean, I, I, you know, I was, I I had to get a bar mitzvah, but you know, I told my mom like a couple months before, I was like, I don't believe in God. Why am I doing this? And she was like, just, just do it. It's more for like, you know, the family and stuff. Uh, So yeah, I, I, I knew also the thing about growing up Jewish is yeah, there's, there's a bunch of the traditional 
the traditions and stuff, which I just always thought was kind of like a waste of time. But there is also like a heritage aspect to it. Like all of my friends that I grew up with all had grandparents um, who survived or didn't survive the Holocaust. And and a lot of uh, my friends had families who were, you know, wiped out by the Holocaust. So going to Jewish school was, uh, you know, there was the traditional aspect, but then there was also just um, kind of the heritage aspect and understanding where I came from and where my ancestors came from. Um, so I think that that to me was a little bit more important than like, uh, you know, having to wear a yarmulke every day and, and stuff like that, which kind of, um, you know, is just for any middle schooler it just is annoying when you're just like trying to get outside and like smoke cigarettes and, and skateboard and stuff. You know? <laughs> yeah, it's an inconvenient nature. And yeah. I'm sure I, I, I appreciate the description of that because you when you are connected to whether it's, you know, a faith or a tradition or whatever it is, it's not that meaningful as you're going through it. But then, mm-hmm. you know, as you get a little older and more perspective, that's when you start to appreciate the whether or not I believe this thing, just having that structure and connection to like you were talking about your not only your friends, but then your family to understand that yeah. experience more deeper than, you know, with just your average yeah. person who's going to public school or whatever. Yeah. And and also to um to the credit of the school that I went to and and uh so basically I was raised a uh, conservative, which is it's almost like mid tier Jewish. You know, like if you're really religious, you're orthodox, mid tier is conservative, and then like Basically, Judaism light is like reform, whatever. That's right. kind of broad strokes. That's what it is. But, you know, what I will say is the environment that I was raised in, I was like, man, I don't know if I believe in God, you know, when I was like in eighth grade. And some of my rabbis who were my teachers were like, that's cool. What matters is being a good person and like, you know, helping out homeless people and doing good deeds. And I was like, oh, so you don't just care about that. You know, like it, there was a lot more emphasis paced, uh, placed on uh, morals and ethics. And, you know, I appreciated that. And I think that was coming from a good place. And I take a lot of that right. with me now. Yeah, right. It, it's like, they weren't just trying to churn you through the system, so to speak. It was like, yeah. Ben, this is, you know, yes, like, that would be great if you believe this, but this is the actual foundation of the faith mm-hmm. and why we do yeah. what we do. Exactly. Yeah, that's cool. And that's cool. Yeah. Did you care, uh, I guess, about school in regards to you know, applying yourself, getting okay grades and that sort of uh, you know trajectory that a kid goes through? No, I didn't. Um, I wish I did a little bit more, but uh, it's not a, the best personality trait, but I only did well in school at the things that I was naturally good at. So for instance, math was just annoying. I was like, what is the point of algebra? There's zero point to it. So I just never applied myself. Um, English came very easily to me. So I always got very good grades in English. And I was like, English rules, but it's only because I didn't have to try at it. So um, yeah, so I just, I just, you know, did what I was good at well, and then didn't try at the other stuff. And that's honestly a really rotten, a rotten way to be. Like, I wish, I wish I had applied <laughs> myself in the things that didn't come easily to me. Cause, uh, you know, that's, uh, I, I like trying now as an adult, I like trying in the things that I suck at because once I do get good at the thing that I sucked at, I'm like, I'm only good at this because I practiced, you know? Um, so that's how yeah. I viewed school. Yeah. And I mean, you know, to cut you a little slack, I think that's most kids have that, mm-hmm attitude just because it is that idea that like 
oh, this is hard. Like, you know, you're not road tested. You're not like, oh man, I've experienced all these hardships. I mean, some kids have, but especially when it comes to school where it's like, oh yeah, I just want to, you know, get A's in English and then, you know, get D's in history or whatever I don't care about to balance, you know, to get a C at the end of the day. Yeah. And, uh, you know, some of my friends could do it. And it's like, they, they were looking at school in like sixth grade as like, they saw the trajectory. Like if I do well here, then I'll do well next year and next year. And then I'll be able to have a job and blah. Like I never connected the dots that like school, this is just a path to like security later in life. And it honestly kind of baffles me that my friends had that and did well in school, but like, God bless, I guess, you know, like I, I just, uh, I never saw it that way. I just, I, I don't know. Maybe I just, I always thought I'd figure it out. You know what I mean? Uh, like I had no idea what I was going to do, but I was, I was like, I don't need algebra. Like I don't need to just prove that I'm good at this. So I get good grades. So then I can go to this place and prove I'm good at this. Like I, I just, I don't know what, maybe it's my aversion to like authority, but I just never wanted to play that game. Yeah. Well, I, I, and I, I think that a lot of people that do get attracted to, subculture and counterculture and everything that you're talking about once you start to understand that not everybody has to travel along the same life path in order to quote unquote figure their life out or whatever it's like oh yeah i can you know pick up a you know drum kit i can (laughs) pick up a skateboard and like i have that sense of freedom whether or not that's something that i'll actually do for the rest of my life is a different story but you start to Mm -hmm. get introduced to these other ideas and that puts you on a whole different path. And that's, you know, when you were getting exposed to that in eighth grade, that's when you're like, oh yeah, maybe I don't need like this, this predetermined thing to do. Yeah. And on that topic, when, like you said, when a lot of the, you know, epifat bands, I like to call them, (laughs) started to get introduced, (laughs) introduced to you. And I'm sure because so much of that was located on the West Coast. And, you know, I know arguably there were definitely bands in your area that uh, paved the way of that sort of pop punk style stuff. Did it, did it feel kind of like a world away where it was like, oh man, like one of the, one day I'll be able to get to California and see Pennywise or whatever. Or was it, you know, did it feel closer because you got to consume so much via skate videos and everything? Yeah. Well, one of the, one of the things that I think made New Jersey such a hotspot for music was its proximity to New York City. So I didn't it didn't feel that far away because all of those bands came through New York. And uh, sure. again, maybe because I was a little bit more um, self-sufficient than some of my other friends, like I figured out how to take a bus to New York City when I was in like eighth grade. So I had a group of friends that would go to venues like Coney Island High and um, St. Mark's Place. That was like the big like punk rock capital of New York. And some of those, uh, you know, bands from California, like uh, Good Riddance and uh, Strung Out would come play New York City. Um, But we would get to take the bus back to our, you know, to our homes and, uh, you know, our homes in the suburbs where our moms bought us drum sets and guitars. So we were able to kind of like tap into that, but at a safe distance, you know, and then be like, mom, can I have $20 to go, you know, buy a record or whatever. Um, so, you know, it didn't seem so far away. And, and the fact that it it did feel uh, like within arm's length, like that just, I, I think, uh, set the fire under me to like want to do it myself, you know, like I just, I wanted to be a part of it so bad. And then when uh, things started shifting a little bit more away from punk rock, more to like, uh, you know, 
emo or melodic hardcore, you know, that's when I was hitting a time in my life uh, that I think most kids hit in high school when you're like, uh, you know, you're thinking about girls, you're thinking about boys, you're thinking about uh, flirting with people. And like, I, I think it was just a very good and interesting timing for me in my life that that's when bands um, around me uh, were becoming popular that were like singing about girls instead of singing about like vegetarianism or, you know what I mean? Like bringing down the government. Totally. They, were, they were singing about like, uh, you know, having romantic dinners, <laughs> you know, uh, right. you could, you, you saw that there was a, a broader lyrical palette to paint from. And it's like, oh yes, we don't need to just be representing being stabbed in the back or straight edge. It's like, there's more out there. Yeah. Yeah. And I that's mean, right. You know, when I was going through a time when I was like, you know, having my first experiences, like getting my heart broken and, and breaking other girls' hearts, like, you know, uh, that's like the first time I heard Saves the Day, I was like listening to Chris sing about, you know, longing for someone. And uh, I, I don't think I'd really like heard songs like that uh, up until that point. I'm very happy to introduce you to my friends at Mutant League Records. They are a great record label that has put out a bunch of cool stuff, but I want to talk about one release in particular from a band called Rest Easy. They're coming out with a new full length on October 28th, which is like in a couple of days if you're listening to this on the week of release of this podcast. The record is called Hope You're Okay. It features members of Daggermouth, Shook Ones. Like You probably get the vibe. You can close your eyes and be like, okay, I, I, th I think we're in the melodic punk vein, which is absolutely what they do, and they kill it. They have been, um, you know, releasing music for the past couple of years, but uh, now it's the first full length. So let's let's dive in. Let's listen to one of their singles called "Hey Maxine," and it'll give you a vibe, and then I'll give you some more directions. Very good, right? So head on over to MutantLeagueRecords.com. You can pre-order to your heart's content of vinyl, tapes, shirts, whatever it is you care about, you'll be able to find it there. And poke around. They have a lot of great releases from a lot of great bands. And I just love labels of this size because you can tell it's a product of passion. They want to work with bands that they really enjoy and spread it as they see fit, which I love. So anyways, shout out to Mutant League Records. Shout out to Rest Easy. Love what you guys are doing and check it out. Spooky season is absolutely upon us and our awesome friends at RockyBilly.com have some great Halloween spooky things going on over there. But first and foremost, you should use this promo code because it will get you 10% off your entire order. 100 words or less, 10% off your entire order. And I'm just going to mention a few things that they have going on over there at their half a million items they have for sale. So many shirts and pieces of merch. They have a rad Slipknot long sleeve that is, uh, I think it's limited to like four or 500 pieces pre-order. It's, it's great. It looks really cool. They also have, if you are a death metal fan, I dare you to look at the skinless <laughs> limited edition Halloween collection they have going on. They got a very cool flag there. If you got some, you know, zombies you want to display above your bed. And they also have a Dark Throne skate deck, which is something I never thought I needed in my life, but uh, apparently I do, even though I'm a terrible skateboarder. But regardless, rockabilly.com, have fun browsing their website, use the promo code 100 words or less, and it will get you 10% off. And plus, it lets them know that marketing works, the show sent you, and everybody wins. So thank you for your continued support, Rockabilia. On with the show. I do love that when, especially too, when you start to 
not only explore different musical territories, but then you understand how maybe the juxtaposition of here is a lyric that I wouldn't anticipate going over, you know, like harder music or whatever. And just like, oh, wow, I can combine all these different things and it doesn't necessarily matter. Like it's all coming from the same, you know, tree, so to speak. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. That was the magic formula. Totally. Totally. No, I love that. And so as you started to, you know, get deeper into this, and like you said, you were very self-sufficient and being able to, you know, go to shows and bum rides from friends or, you know, take public transit. How was your mom reacting to you getting into this stuff that she probably didn't have any context for? I mean, clearly she was supportive in getting you a drum set, but was she, I guess, ever concerned at all? Like, oh, Ben's bringing some weird music home. And what do you mean he's going to like a a show on a Thursday night? Like what, you know, is it a concert or is it a show? Like, (laughs) how is that going on in the house? Yeah. So uh, I think my mom's always had this, this trust for me um, that I wasn't ever doing anything um, for the wrong reasons. Um, and I think I got into trouble as a kid cause I was a class clown because I wanted attention, but I also did manage to, uh, be productive. And I think she always saw me as very creative and, and as very, uh, kind of like the leader of all my other friends. Like I, I was the one who convinced all my other friends to start taking music lessons when they were in like fifth grade because I wanted to be in a band. So then that was my band because I had like recruited my friends to do it. So you know, I think my mom always trusted that um, I was going to make it work. So she just, she always let me go to shows. And, um, you know, the first show that I did when I was 13, my mom was collecting the money at the door and helping me rent the PA. And uh, she's just been, um, you know, an ally for me over the years. Yeah, that's, that's beautiful. And I, I think it, I mean, Jersey was always an interesting place because I, I played in hardcore bands and toured for years too. And the shows that we would play in Jersey were, um, you know, there was that the, the mythic idea of playing, you know, a New Brunswick basement show or whatever, you know, mm-hmm. ripping off the Lifetime lyric or whatever. Um, but it, it always did seem interestingly supportive to what you're talking about of kids that were very young but their parents were just like yeah you can let some people come in the basement and like you said your mom taking money at the door and i i do think that is pretty unique for new jersey so did you recognize that amongst uh i guess any of your other friends or peers that their parents were doing things that maybe you didn't see that were happening once you started to get out there and tour uh yeah i mean i i just i always knew that at shows when I first started going to shows when I was 13, there was such a positive um, mentality about the shows. Like uh, it was all very DIY, but it was all community focused. And, you know, I remember the first time I was ever in a mosh pit, it was like the most fun thing ever. But my first memories of a mosh pit is the bands always saying like, you know, if somebody falls, you pick them up. And, and it was this communal thing. And I think our parents picked up on the fact, like I would come home and say like, like not like how amazing the music was. I'd be like, Oh, and we were all picking each other off the floor. And, uh, and I met this guy who, you know, gave me, you know, a tape of his new band and it was awesome. And then we all went to a diner afterwards, you know, there was like so much like friendship and community. And I think my, our parents picked up on that. And then eventually when we were in bands that were asking our parents, like if we could go play a show on a weekend, even though we were 16 or 17, like all of the parents got together. And um, I, I think they felt comfortable because they were all supportive and talked to each other about it. Uh, you know, so 
yeah, I think it was cool. I think, um, you know, we, we were all lucky, I guess, in the New Jersey scene to, to have supportive parents. Yeah. yeah. And also have basements because <laughs> that's basements, not common around exactly. the country. Yeah. 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 And so when you started to, you know, play drums and have a desire to, uh, like you were talking to all your friends and having them pick up instruments and kind of figuring it out. It, it seemed like, uh, cause I know you played in a band before, uh, the project of armor for sleep getting put together. What kind of took you into the idea of playing in a band? Was it immediately once you started to like go to shows or was that an idea that you needed to work yourself up to? No. So um, the first album I ever listened to was the Black Album by Metallica. I bought that cassette tape at a supermarket called Pathmark in New Jersey. And I put it on. And the second uh, the riff of Enter Sandman came in, like I was like, I need to, I need to do this. I don't know what this is, uh, but I need to be in a band. So then when I, I was like, Mom, can I please take drum lessons? She was like, yeah. So in fourth grade uh, is when I convinced my friends to play instruments. My friend Evan started playing bass. My friend Jeremiah started playing guitar and we would just practice at my mom's house once a week. We would play like half Nirvana songs, half No Doubt songs. Uh, We didn't have a singer, so that was it. Um, So we were already playing in a band before we knew that there were local shows going on around us. Um, We were just playing whatever was on the radio. And then when we found out about shows when we were 12 or 13 years old, we already had like a couple years experience uh, playing in my mom's basement. So when we got to high school, we met this guy, Matt, who became our singer. We were like, we should, we should throw our hat in the ring. Um, so yeah, then we started playing shows when we were um, 14 years old. Um, but it's because we already loved it before then. Right. You're like, we spent, we, we spent many hours just, you know, playing, like you said, uh, covers of everything to yeah. get to the point where we can put a few power chords together and write our own songs. Mm-hmm. When, uh, so as you were developing this idea of playing in bands and putting on shows and, and per- really participating in the scene in a, a real active way, you were pretty young. Were you treated differently because you were young? Was it that kind of idea that, you know, whatever 17, 18 year olds are like, Oh, look at this little kid, Ben coming around to shows and stuff. Uh, or like you said, did you feel really, uh, welcome and embraced? Um, yeah. So I had a nickname. I was called little Ben back then because, uh, (laughs) I was, (laughs) I was super involved in everything. But like I said, with the first show that I did, I was 13 years old and, you know, I was calling bands from out of state and organizing, you know, a show, I think like three or 400 people came to the first show. Um, who was that Ben? That's, that's a lot. Who was, who did you book that you got that? Um, so the big band that played was a band called Edna's Goldfish. They were um, a ska band who were on Moon Sky Records at the time, which was the big uh, ska label from New York City. Um, oh, yeah. Brian, very, very this, familiar. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Brian, the singer of Edna's Goldfish, would go on to be in a band called The Reunion Show. And now um, he's a huge uh, guitar tech. He, I know he was Pete Wentz's guitar tech from Fall Out Boy for like many years. Uh, he's a, an amazing photographer, too. Um, also, this band called Humble Beginnings played from New Jersey. And the bass player for Humble Beginnings was this guy, Gabe Saporta, who went on to be in Midtown and then Cobra Starship and actually would go on to be Armor for Sleep's manager when we Right, your manager, yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Totally. So, yeah. So, I basically met him in the, like, when I was 13 years old, he was playing the show. um, And I I booked, I just booked that show because I wanted to see them play. I was a really big Humble Beginnings fan. Um, Yeah. 
So yeah, no, you know, that, I did get called incredible. Little Ben. Yeah, thanks, man. I did get called Little Ben, but it wasn't it wasn't in a like a derogatory way because the people who were calling me Little Ben uh, were probably fifteen year old kids. You know, <laughs> like it wasn't there was nobody above the age of nineteen who was doing shows at that time. Um, right. So it, it really wasn't out of the ordinary. Yeah, that's true, and especially too where when you're that you you know when you're between the ages of like you know 14 and 19 when you're watching a person play a show that is just a few years older than you they you feel like they're so much older but then when you actually maybe find out their age at a later date you're like they were only like two years older than me but they felt so much older (laughs) yeah totally and so when you uh, started to put together, you know, Armor for Sleep, I know that that was, you know, your brainchild in regards to, you know, you recording all the, um, you know, the music mm-hmm. and instruments your, yourself. And then you, you know, once there was attention paid to the band uh, in regards to the fact that the music was getting out there and people seemed to enjoy it, was that... Um, you know, I guess stressful for you to kind of retroactively be like, Oh, I gotta, I gotta find some people to play with. And now there's this like, you know, proverbial pressure that is on me or was it just kind of like, Oh, it's exciting. Like, let's do this. Um, I didn't feel the pressure. I just, I I felt the excitement, you know, it was always, um, it was always what I wanted to do. And I remember when I, when I had quit, uh, the band called random tasks that I played drums for when I was 17, because I wanted to start Armor for Sleep and and sing the songs that I had been writing, my friend was like, "You can't quit that band. You guys have already played shows. You have like a fan base. You can't start another <laughs> band." And and I was like, "No, you know, it's it's what I want to do." So I I never, you know, I, I was never scared by it. It was just always like, um, you know, I always just viewed it as like one one foot in front of the other, you know. Right. Um, yeah. You, you wouldn't have had the chance to think about something being stressful because you were just trying to, you know, like you said, take the next step as opposed to, mm-hmm. oh my gosh, it's so stressful. Now I got to find people to play with. And oh my gosh, it's like, yeah, you didn't think that way. Yeah. Yeah. And when you started, to, once you had the band and, you know, you started, like you mentioned, started working with Gabe and labels started to happen. Shows were a more regular part of your life as far as, you know, playing maybe a little bit. Uh, mm-hmm. either out of state or out of your, your city. Um, did you like touring initially? Uh, or cause I know relatively early on, you guys actually went to South by Southwest, I think. Right. Didn't you? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, I just, I, I, I remember that because I, you, you played an equal vision showcase and I just remember, yeah. <laughs> I think this day forward, this day forward played with you guys possibly. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Yeah. We used them. to play with them all the time. Yeah, I just remember them, uh, you know, freaking out about you guys as well. But, anyways, oh, the awesome. touring aspect. Yeah, the touring aspect. Was it? Did you? Was it what you thought it was cracked up to be, or was that something that was like, "Ooh, this is a little different than I thought." So there are two sides to that. One, no, not really, and it was really hard in the beginning and um, kind of unfulfilling, you know. And I think I think a part of that was like. So Gabe was our manager uh, throughout when we made our first album, Dream to Make Believe. And then um, after it came out, he was still managing us. And he, as well as a bunch of the people around us, uh, like, for instance, we were really good friends with um, Taking Back Sunday at the time, who were doing their first album. And Taking Back Sunday were just always telling us that we were going to be the next big thing in the scene. They just loved our sound and they loved everything. 
And then we saw them get big really fast. And, you know, that didn't happen for us when our first album came out. So um, I know for them, they definitely, they toured a lot before they were big and they, they paid their dues, but they blew up really fast. And, um, you know, that it didn't happen for us like that. And so I think touring was almost a little bit harder because so many people had so many hopes for us early on that like to still be playing those shows for like 10 or 15 people and to be like, what are we doing? Um, was a little bit tougher, you know, when like we would come home and people would be like, I don't know why you guys aren't the biggest thing. Like, so that was hard. And, and also, um, I, I, you know, playing live for me just didn't feel natural at the beginning. I think because, Maybe like I'd been playing shows for so long in my other band, but I'd been doing so as a drummer. And then like the first demo I did for Armor for Sleep, I had to be playing shows and singing and playing guitar like pretty soon after that. And I just didn't have the chops yet. Um, I didn't have the experience of singing and performing in front of people. So it was just, it was really like foreign to me for a long time. And, uh, uh, you know, it, that that aspect definitely took took me a long time to feel comfortable and like have fun and and feel like that was an equal part of the band to you know the recording of the music which is always like you know was my favorite part yeah i i think that's interesting of the 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 through line of i mean there's one thing to be said about your friends and family and like you know maybe like you were talking about with Gabe your manager saying hey you, you know you guys are really good and I, I think that you have you know a bright future but that idea that if you kind of swing too far in the opposite direction where it's like i don't know why you guys are aren't you know bigger than you know all mm. of these bands and it's it starts to play with your mind and i, I can understand where you're coming from of like not even so much that you are, you know, I don't want to pay my dues or anything. I just want to be the biggest band ever. But just the idea that when so many people tell you a certain thing, especially at that age, you just start to believe it. Yeah. And like, I didn't expect that from us at all. So I almost would have preferred nobody said that, you know, um, <laughs> you know, like, I thought we sucked. Like- <laughs> I thought we completely sucked. So like, I would have been fine playing in front of 10 people and just like knowing that's what it was. But, you know, especially someone like Gabe, who I looked up to so much, who was all, like, in my mind, Midtown were the biggest band in the world for him to say like, no, you guys are going to be bigger than us or whatever. And then it not happen. Yeah. I, I just think it was, it was uh, a little confusing for me, you know? Let me be the first or maybe second or third person to tell you, you need to visit evilgreed.net. They are an incredible merchandise slash web store purveyor of everything that you could possibly want from a heavy music, artistic music. They act like a record label because they have a carefully curated list of bands and labels that they work with. But the most important thing that you can take away from this is this awesome promo code, 100 words. It gets you 10% off your entire order. And many of you have used this, and I am very glad about that because it shows marketing works. But let me encourage you to go to their website because you will be able to see some of the rad bands that they are working with. Like there's a band called Brutus, and they are on Church Road Records. And I love what they do, and they have a web store there. They also have bands like Blood Incantation. They also work with labels like Triple B and Close Casket Activities. So I don't care what you are into. 
if you like something that is of the artistic slash heavy variety, they got it for you. And even though they're based in Berlin, Germany, they ship to the U.S. lickety-split, and it's not a ridiculous price. It's awesome. And that's why they're reaching out to you. I'm pointing to you, the listener, to visit evilgreed.net, use the promo code 100words, and we'll get you 10% off your order. So have fun browsing. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. We all want more time in our lives. You know, whether it's like, dang, I wish I had like another hour to, you know, play video games or read more or get outside or whatever it is. I know myself that I actually get questions a lot in regards to this podcast. How do you fit it in your day? And like, how do you do the interviews and all that stuff? to be able to then balance the rest of my life from my work and, you know, playing in a band and I have a family, all of these things. But that is why therapy is so awesome because it helps you be able to sort out your life to focus on the things that for one really matter to you and two, try to find more time for those things that you love. That is why I love working with BetterHelp because if you need to find a therapist. They're there for you. So give them a try. It's entirely online. It's designed to be convenient for you and they can be suited to your schedule. And you fill out a brief questionnaire, matches you up with your own personal therapist. And if you do not like that experience, you can switch it. No problem. No questions asked. It's great. So learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash Ray today to get 10% off of your first month. It's an offer just for you, the listener of this podcast. That's BetterHelp.com slash Ray. As you started to progress, put out a record, and then, you know, get, uh, you know, a little more attention and people... Uh, you know, started to have, uh, you know, maybe tempered expectations on like, oh, okay, you know, this band isn't going to be the biggest thing in the world in six months. It's like, you know, they'll, they'll do the kind of the quote unquote normal band trajectory for, for yourself. When did you feel that the band started to be more real um, in regards to people paying attention to what you were doing? And, you know, like you said, having, you know, maybe people that did not, uh, you know, you weren't friends with singing back your lyrics to you and stuff like that. When did, uh, when did that kind of happen in your head? Yeah. So it's, it's funny sometimes how life goes like, um, when you don't want something, that's when you get it. And then when you want something, you don't get it. So like after dream <laughs> to make believe, um, you know, I was, I, I just speaking for myself, I was bummed because I was like, wow, we let Gabe down. We let taking back Sunday down, we didn't really, we didn't get big. Like we didn't do it. Like no one really cared about the first album. And I wasn't sure equal vision. were really going to like care for much longer. We were on a new management company at the time called crush that Gabe, um, Gabe decided to make Midtown a thing again. So he, the management company that was going to start managing Midtown, he was like, Hey, can you guys manage this band too? Or can you guys take over managing armor for sleep? Because I was managing them, but I don't just want to like leave them. And, and Crush was like, sure, I guess we'll manage them. So we were with this new management company who I didn't feel like really cared about us. So I was like, all right, no one's no one's watching. No one really cares. Uh, I'll just write an album about being dead because that's how I felt. So <laughs> I wrote, <laughs> so I wrote this this album. Like that's that's how I was feeling at the time. You know, like I felt like I had like put my life on hold. I'd stopped going to college. I'd uh, broken up with my girlfriend because I was going on tour with so much. 
Uh, I felt like nobody cared about what I was doing. So I, I really kind of did feel like a ghost. So I wrote an album called what to do when you're dead. I, I, like we didn't think anyone would really care. We were just kind of having fun. And then when that came out, um, that's when I actually did start feeling that we were getting big. You know, that's when we started having, people at the shows like just falling on top of themselves. And, uh, you know, I think maybe that thing that I was waiting for, uh, during dream to make believe finally started happening. Um, and so that was, that was interesting. That was just a weird like plot twist that I wasn't expecting. Right. It's, <laughs> it's like, you're telling me I need to not care. And then people care. Is, is that it? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, you know, it's a very it's a very important lesson that I learned, uh, you know, years later when I realized what had happened. Uh, but that's pretty much exactly what happened. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, and and it's true. It's it is one of those things, especially when you free yourself of the, any preconceived notions and are just you know letting something exist for whatever it is in your head. And those are the times where you can be most surprised at the way that other people perceive your art where it's like, Oh, okay. I really didn't think that much about this besides me just putting myself into it. And then all of a sudden mm-hmm. that's what people care apparently. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> and as you, uh, you know, cause I, I know obviously releasing two records in equal vision and then, you know, moving on to the major label, I know you've, uh, you know, opined in uh, many interviews <laughs> in regards to not, not, not being, uh, you know, at the right place, at the right time. I thought it was, especially in regards to signing to a major at that sort of tail end of the, uh, you know, gold rush of <laughs> independent music in the early two thousands. Um, mm. did, as you were going through these different, um, you know, record cycles and working with different record labels and management and stuff, how did you interact with the business side of uh, the music? Was it always a necessary evil that you had to kind of treat or did you like to stay a little bit removed from it because, uh, that just wasn't something you were interested in? Um, I, I, always i think tried to please everyone around me and especially when we got on a bigger management company when we had a signed to a a major label my thought was always like i want to show everyone that like we're here to play ball because everyone just wants to see the band succeed and i want the band to succeed and like i don't want to piss this person off i don't want to piss that person off i want to you know show you know i i thought i thought i was um doing the right thing by trying to make everyone around me happy business wise. But what I was really doing was shooting myself in the foot and shooting everyone else in the foot too. Um, you know, I, I think uh, sometimes I look back uh, and I just, I, maybe I, I wish I was a little bit more of an asshole with uh, the people who are rent, res, uh, representing me. Um, but it's hard when you're young and, you know, people seem to be, I mean, people were wanting to help uh, me, um, but I, I think I second-guessed myself a lot because I I just I didn't want to rock the boat. You know what I mean? Like, I was one of those kids that I just never wanted to rock the boat. I didn't want to be the bad guy. I wanted to say yes to everybody to make everybody feel involved because I was I was happy that people wanted my band to do well, you know? So like if someone wanted to be in the room and give their opinion, I was like, I'm so happy you're here giving your opinion. <laughs> what is it? You know, say it yeah. louder. <laughs> when I should have been like, please leave. You're going to mess this up. Um, 
So that's right. kind of how I always dealt with uh, the business. And I, I learned a few hard lessons about that for sure. Yeah. Well, and that probably goes to who you are as a person in regards to your personality of, mm-hmm. you know, cause there, there are definitely people who thrive in conflict and thrive in drama. And there's other people that avoid it at all costs. And right. that can definitely play itself out on the business side of things where it's like, listen, the path of least resistance, because like you said, you're, if you're paying attention to me, like that is, you know, I'm at the top of the mountain, like whatever you want from here is, is great. Like I'm listening. Yep. Did yeah, you feel and, that, you that, know, uh, that, that, that's great. Maybe when you're making sneakers or something, but like if right. you're, if you're, right. if you're making a, you know, an art, if you, you know, if you're making your, a piece of art, um, then sometimes it's good to not let those voices, voices affect the art itself. And, and with a band, sometimes the art is more than just about, uh, the actual songs too. You know what I mean? Like a, a band is a, an all encompassing piece of art and, um, if you let too many people meddle with that and there's not enough of a vision, then it just, the whole thing kind of falls apart. Sure. Did you feel that you were also deferential in regards to just the dynamics that play into a band as far as touring and spending so much time with people? Were you, I guess, outwardly trying to keep everyone else happy, but then, you know, just maybe maybe you were dying a little bit inside on tours or anything like that, Mm -hmm. or am I reading too much into it? Um, no, you know, I I always, I always liked hanging with our fans and, uh, being on tour. Um, I mean, it was draining for sure, but, uh, that part I always loved. I I know that for sure that I loved, um, hanging with our fans. I still do now. I mean, we just got off a tour and every single night after we played, I would say, I'm going to walk right over to the t-shirts. Come say hi to me. I want to meet you guys. Um, because that's how, you know, that's how I, uh, loved the bands that I loved when I would not only hear the songs, but I'd get to talk to the singer about what book he was reading. And like that connected me more to the art for some reason that, that might be weird, but like maybe that's a scene thing, but like, I still feel like, you know, having, having that, uh, some open channels is, is nice. So yeah, yeah I always liked I, that part of it. I, I really like that. Cause I, I do think that, especially what you're talking about those little those simple interactions that can be um maybe inconsequential to one person but then completely change the course of the other person's life because it's you know like you said the recommending a book or being like oh yeah you should check out this you know record from this band and then all of a sudden that person is like oh my gosh like ben just recommended this record and like i i can't i've never even heard of it before oh my gosh like you know those those things are that that's exactly what you're talking about it's so it plants and also for- you know it's not just charity either like it, it goes both ways like i genuinely like sometimes if i'm on stage and like uh, i don't know whatever our monitor mix is bad and i'm like the vibe at that show sucked and like no one liked us if i go and like talk to people you know by the t-shirts afterwards i like talk to people who drove three hours and tell me a story about how, you know how they made their best friendship happen because of listening to us like I love talking to them, but also like, it's super important for me. And like, that's just, just, it's kind of insane to me that, uh, I and the rest of the guys could have been a part of something that touched people 
that touched their lives in, in such unique ways that that's lasted for years. Like I, I selfishly get a lot out of talking to our fans at our shows. So, you know, it's not just like charity for like, you know, them to shake me and be like, no, like, I hope you feel connected to my songs now, but like, I love it. And you know, it's, it's been like super special for me to be a part of, to talk to so many people. Um, so yeah, it's, yeah, no, I, I really like that. It's reciprocal. It definitely, goes mm-hmm. both ways i I, yeah. I think that's an important aspect and so when the, when the band started to you know ramp down as far as being a active touring you know record cycle get on the mm-hmm. uh you know the proverbial treadmill was that difficult for you to kind of transition into you know being ben from armor for sleep to you know just like ben as it were i mean clearly people know you from your band and the music that you put out there but just to kind of like look at real life i mean i know that you did a lot of work with crush management after the band kind of ended mm-hmm. in regards to songwriting day-to-day management stuff but was that a difficult transition or was it were you excited that you could kind of you know do other things besides be on tour for 200 days out of the year um yeah, I think I think I thought um I could just I, I think there was a part of me that wanted to be my own person outside of uh the Ben from Armor for Sleep, you know, and I think I I thought that I would be happy if I could prove that I could live a life. Um I, I don't know, it's like I, I got so much from the band and um it like shaped who I was. I, I don't know how, how to explain it, but I almost feel like there was a part of me that wanted to prove to myself that I could have a normal life outside of that. Um, I, I don't, I don't know where that came from, but yeah, I think, I think I did just want to be Ben. And um, uh, it took me a few years to realize that like I, I could have both, you know, and uh, I think maybe I needed to do that to come full circle to that realization that uh, I can be my own person and I can also be super grateful um, for everything that the band has taught me and through all the experiences it gave me, but like it didn't need to be one or the other, you know? Um, But yeah, so to answer your question, yeah, I think I was running away from it a little bit. Yeah. But I mean, I, to that idea of being able to, because some people, you know, transition immediately into some other band or musical project because that is like the easiest lifeline for you to build another identity around rather than, okay, I'm going to take stock of, you know, maybe who I am as a person, what I want to do next. uh, And those, you know, that can be a scary step. So, I mean, it's cool that you were able to kind of balance all that together while not just completely walking away from music because I know a lot of people end up doing that as well. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. The um, every uh, piece of press around the new record, like everybody, you know, dives into, oh, like you know, what was your headspace and why did you come back? And you know, I I just love the answer of just like, yeah, I went through a really terrible time with divorce, and then people are like, <laughs> oh my god, I'm sorry. And I just, I, I just love, I love how blunt you've been in regards to that because it's, um, you know, I think that people are sometimes uh, afraid to approach that topic or even speak about it. Um, mm. The, the the thing that I, I am interested in is the fact that you could have done this, you know, this uh, artistic expression, even though realistically, 
people would compare it to armor for sleep. Like you didn't need to do this under armor for sleep. Like you could have simply done, and I know you had some solo project material, but like what made you feel, I guess, compelled to release this as an armor for sleep thing? Was it because that idea had been planted so long ago that it would have felt weird if you tried to do something else? Um, that's a really good question. Um, <laughs> sorry, I just I realized it, it took me a long time to get up to that point, but I just I I felt I was like just thinking about that in those terms of like, oh yeah, you could have just done anything, started a new band, or you know, mm-hmm. called it anything, but then you felt compelled to do that. So, anyways, yeah. I mean, I think it comes down to what I thought would be most interesting, you know? So, uh, I I didn't start writing the album knowing that I was going to go through uh, the awful time that I went through. I actually, like, I had the idea to do uh, the album, The Rain Museum, uh, during lockdown, like right when uh, the pandemic happened, um, just because I, I had the time and we... Uh, we we were planning to do the 15 year um, anniversary tour for what to do when you were dead, but that was put on hold because of the pandemic. So I was already in the space of like, oh, I'm going to play shows with the armor guys again. It's probably going to be in like a year or we had no idea if it was going to happen again. Um, so I was kind of in the armor mentality again. And I was like, you know, let me let me do something for armor again, just because that was on my mind a lot. Uh, I was like practicing the old songs again. And, um, you know, so I, I sat down to revisit this idea I had for the Rain Museum, which is something that I had wanted to finish for a long time. And I was talking to my friend who was like carving a chess set during the pandemic. You know, every, everyone was like, whatever, building bird boxes, doing jigsaw puzzles. <laughs> yep. Uh, you know, and it, it's lame now because so many people have made jokes about everyone who said they were going to do like an EP during the, <laughs> during the pandemic or whatever. But <laughs> totally. like... I was going to do this thing. Um, so I started, I started um, kind of putting the foundations into place for it. Um, and, you know, I guess you asked the question, why armor for sleep? Why not, you know, just a solo thing or whatever? Um, because I think part of the interesting thing for me was resurrecting this idea for something that I had, you know, like 15, 16 years ago, but also kind of resurrecting the sound of the music too. And the nostalgia that that sound had for me also bringing up this old creative idea that I had. I think those two things kind of went hand in hand in a really interesting way, you know, where like if it was just rain museum with like me doing a solo thing, I don't think it would have been as interesting to me, you know? So it was kind of like, you know, cause the idea of the rain museum and of me uh, unearthing this idea was kind of like looking, you know, like one of the themes is like looking into the past and unearthing something from the past and facing what that means and how that affects what's going on in the present. So it had the duality of making this cool album, but also, you know, making this cool album that I had in the past, but also in the style of music that I used to do in my life that I was revisiting so I thought that was really interesting. So as I was doing that, obviously, that's when I went through a very dark personal time. And that's when that started sneaking in. But again, that what I was going through, I felt um, had a lot of interesting parallels with, um, again, the themes that I was, I was that were running through my, my head uh, in the record in terms of nostalgia and looking backwards and how looking backwards affects the present day and just kind of looking at like 
the timeline of your life, you know, through things you've been through to, you know, and for me, that was my band, that was my relationship and um, what that means, like, you know, looking back at something and then thinking about what it means now and then what it's going to mean to the future. You know, it's like, it, it all made sense to me that w- it was going to be armor for sleep, that it was going to be this old rain museum idea. And then I couldn't help but write, you know, about what I was going through personally, you know, so it was interesting yeah. to me and it made sense. Yeah. Yeah. It, it, I understand the, the tying it together. Cause I mean, nostalgia is a very powerful drug. I mean, clearly we're seeing that, you know, every 10 to 15 year record cycle where bands can do their anniversary tours and, you know, draw like twice as many people (laughs) that Mm -hmm. they did, you know, when they were playing the record or whatever. But uh, yeah, for you being able to connect all those dots and like, there was no other repository for you to kind of put it out there because of all of these things that were pointing towards the direction of, yes, I need to call this armor for sleep. I don't need to call it anything Mm -hmm. else. Yeah. The uh, two last things I want to hit on was the, um, you, and I, I mean this with a, a great deal of respect, like your voice is very <laughs> unique, like in the sense of like you, you can sing and I'll be the first person as a screamer of a hardcore band to say that, like you can sing, but the way that your tone inflects it, it's, you know, not polished for lack of a better term. Mm. And uh, I, I, I know for myself, offensive. that's. Yes, I, I figured as much. Yeah, I know. <laughs> you're like this. This interview is over. Yeah. <laughs> um, but I, I think that's what uh, you know. A lot of people, including myself, were drawn to because there is this element of okay, yes, like I can you know carry a tune and I can sing melodies, but it is not overly you know compressed, polished, whatever you want to call it, to where mm-hmm. you're just kind of ironing it out to sound like uh, you know all of the other bands that are in your genre. I, I'm yeah. sure that that's something that you have always either paid attention to or thought about, or maybe struggled with at times. Um, I don't know if that thought has been reflected back on you, but um, that's what I've noticed personally. Um, yeah. You know, I think that's just kind of um, the, like what I personally find important. For instance, my, my guitar playing is like the same way. Like my guitar skills are just so I can, play the songs um and i never wanted to be a shredder i never wanted to learn how to solo to the nth degree like i think people who can do that are amazing like i love bands like polyphia that are are just super technical and and i think that's artistic and really cool too but for me and for a lot of the bands that i've liked i I will like i think nirvana is like the quintessential um example of that where like Kurt Cobain just played the chords that could express the emotion of the songs. Cause that was most important to him. Um, so I think with my singing and my guitar playing for this band, it's just been kind of like utilitarian, like just to like get the emotions across of what I'm trying to do. Like, I'm not going to show off vocally. I'm not going to show off on guitar because that's just, you know, for this project, you know, I, I think that the art is in more of like the bones of the songs. Um, you know, maybe I'll do another band where I like sing like Matt Bellamy or something. Not like I could, but yeah, for this band, I, you know, I haven't cared about that. And also, you know, there's something to be said for literally this, this first songs I, I did for the band. The first t- times I ever sung the songs were when I stepped up to the microphone to record them in the studio the first time. And I just didn't have 
the vocal experience, you know, so like I could sit here and say that it, it was some intentional artistic statement, but also it's just kind of like, that's just how the chips fell. Like I wasn't a trained vocalist. I just never valued that. Um, so chances are if somebody wants, you know, some, some crazy uh, vibrato and operatic singing, I, I doubt armor for sleep would be their favorite band, but I, I won't hold it against them. Like I love muse just as much as, as everyone else. I think, Matt Bellamy's an amazing singer, but I also, I love Thursday, you know, and I love the way Jeff sings. Um, I think that it really works too. So I guess if, if people yeah. dig what, what this is, then cool. But like, I won't, I won't hold it against you if you don't. Right. <laughs> yeah. You're like different strokes for different folks. So, you know, mm-hmm. I, I'm not going to be able to to hit that note that you want me to hit, but I can hit some other things that hopefully yeah. you might like. <laughs> yeah. Uh, the, uh, the last thing was, uh, I'm sure because you have had this uh, time to process, not only releasing new music, but playing shows, like you were talking about the tour that you just ended. Um, and then being able to have more perspective of what armor for sleep has meant to people either, the hand-to-hand uh, uh, relations that you have with, you know, people after shows and stuff. What, um, and this may be a difficult question to answer, but what has, I guess, surprised you about the legacy that Armor for Sleep has had? Because, I mean, you know, realistically, like, people don't need to care about you anymore. Like, you know, like, there's plenty of bands that have uh, filled in the space in between, but there is a lasting, um, you know, impression that the band has left. So I don't know what surprised you about that, or is it just... Um, you know, the, the fact that you can get out there and still play shows, that's what's important to you. Um, no, I mean, there's absolutely something that's very surprising to me. And that's, um, you know, anyone who comes up and tells me that, um, I or armor for sleep or, you know, our songs saved their life. I think that's something that I'd never expected to hear, but it's something that, I hear more and more through the years and I don't take that lightly. And I, I never, whenever anyone says that to me, I've never once gotten the impression someone was like, just saying it to like, uh, get a, a rise out of me or, or, or get my attention. You know what I mean? Um, and that is something that, um, I, yeah, like I said, I don't take de- delicately and I, I guess it's, it's surprising to me, but in, in the best way possible. Like if there was one thing that I could have asked for, uh, you know, when writing these songs for this band, when I was like 17, like if someone, like if a genie came down and was like, if one day someone will say that your songs saved their life, like I would have been like, yes, that's the top thing. You know what I mean? Like who, who could ask for something more than that? So I, I take, I, I, take it at face value that th- what they're saying is true. Um, but if it is true, then uh, yeah, that's the most amazing thing I've ever done, you know, um, or ever been. Right. Like mission accomplished. <laughs> I, yeah. Mission accomplished. I didn't even know that was a mission, and, but it was accomplished and it's a crazy thing to hear. And like, you know, I, I don't even know how to respond sometimes. Um, but, uh, you know, I, I yeah. So, it it lands. No, I, I I get it, and I think that 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 idea, especially when you can release new music that you feel not only is vital to the band's you know legacy, and you know isn't just like some complete cheeseball rehash of like, all right, man, we got to capture that magic that we had on the yeah. first record or whatever, and then still be able to do what you want to do on stage. I, I think that is that full circle moment where 
people who couldn't like didn't have access to the band can now appreciate it and then also still have something new to chew on it's just it's cool to be able to have all of those things operating at the same time yeah absolutely yeah well ben thank you very much for hanging out i really appreciate you letting me ping pong around your brain and uh, take you down memory lane <laughs> yeah man of course thank you there we go. There was Ben from Armor for Sleep. Shout out to his publicist, Rich, for hooking this up. He always has good ideas, and I appreciate those ideas when he pitches them to me. So, uh, yeah, Ben, like I said, great dude. Listen to Armor for Sleep. You'll be able to hear all of the personal journeys that he went through on this record because it's deep, as you obviously heard with this discussion. So check it out on Equal Vision Records. Let us talk about who's on the episode next week. This is another live conversation from Outbreak Fest over in Manchester, United Kingdom in June of 2022, but I finally get to release these episodes. It's awesome. I got Matt from Citizen and Issa from Slow Crush, both really fun conversations. Uh, I actually was a little bit nervous on the uh, the Slow Crush interview because I, I liked the band so much. Not to say I wasn't nervous for the uh, Matt from Citizen, but I, I've had him on the podcast before, so we were you know used to hanging with each other. But um, yeah, that's what's happening next week. And until then, please be safe, everybody. The show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Trust me in saying that no matter who you are, mental health challenges can affect you, and how you manage them can make all of the difference. That's why everyone should have access to mental health support that meets them where they are and helps them get through. BetterHelp provides online therapy on your schedule. It's flexible, simple to use, and more affordable than in-person therapy. Connect with a licensed therapist selected just for you. Learn more at BetterHelp.com. That's BetterHelp.com. This is Tracy V. Wilson from Stuff You Missed in History Class. The national sales event is on at your Toyota dealer, making now the perfect time to get a great deal on a dependable new car. Like a legendary Camry built for performance and available with all-wheel drive, you can count on your new Camry to get anywhere you need to go. Or check out an affordable and reliable Corolla with a trim for every lifestyle. From the hip sedan to the sporty hatchback, there's a Corolla built just for you. Check out more national sales event deals when you visit buyatoyota.com. Toyota, let's go places. Farm to store in days, not weeks. That's 80 Acres Farms. Did you know most salads travel over 2,000 miles to reach your plate? But not 80 Acres Farms. Their crisp salad greens and herbs are food less traveled. They stay fresher for longer in your fridge. My salad lasts all week long, which means less food waste and easy meal planning. Oh, and did I mention there's zero need to wash these greens? Because 80 Acres Farms uses zero pesticides. Visit 80acresfarms.com to learn more and find their salads and salad kits at your local Harris Teeter.